Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Before we start today's broadcast, I'd like just to thank you for listening to Let the Bible Speak week by week. Please feel free to get in touch and let us know how the program has been a blessing to your soul. Our email address again is malvernfpc at yahoo.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, let's take our Bibles again tonight, turning to the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're coming again to the verses 23 and 24. Now, this prayer of the Apostle Paul uh, at the close of this chapter that has been doing so much to exhort the people of God regarding their conduct as they wait the Lord's return. Now, let's take the reading from the verse number 16. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Amen. May God be pleased to encourage our hearts in his word again tonight. Now, these verses and this prayer are so relevant when we consider the Lord's working in local churches we come together to pray as a local church, and we pray for other local churches. Um, we, must, we must use the Word of God to govern and direct our prayers. What is a local church but a collection of sinners who've been saved by grace? And so saved sinners come together into the house of God to worship the Lord. And as those who have been saved from sin, we've been given by the Lord a desire to please the Lord. Again, the absence of that desire is an indication of an old, unregenerate heart. But when you're born again, there is this desire to please God. There's a longing after obedience. We want to rejoice evermore. We want to pray without ceasing. We want to give thanks in everything. We want to value the word of the Lord. But trouble comes. We are sinners saved by grace, and there is this ongoing wrestling with sin and with selfishness. And so we find ourselves succumbing to despondency. We give up on prayer, and at times we lack thankfulness, and we don't certainly value the Word of God as we ought. And so Paul, having given these strong words of exhortation, then I believe encourages the people by this prayer. It's a prayer that has a message, a prayer that speaks to their hearts, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. He's burdened. He's burdened that the desire of their heart will be realized. The burden they have to obey the will of God will be realized as God works in their lives. The last time we were in this portion, we noticed in verse number 23 that it is, it is a prayer for forest sanctification. Every part of our humanity sanctified through and through. And that's what the verse means. It has this idea of a, of a thoroughness in God's work and sanctification in our lives. 
Uh, use the illustration of a home. Our lives are like a person's home when the Lord goes from room to room. Every room, no rooms closed off from God, and he works thoroughly in every room. He gets into the very corners of the rooms of our lives. And now, if you're not converted, that will sound intrusive and invasive. You will not want that in your life. There's this resistance to God's work in your life. But as a child of God, we delight in this. We say, yes, Lord, even so do it, Lord. Search me, O God, and try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We have a burden that this prayer be answered, don't we? We should have. We should realize we don't want any sin in our lives. Christ has died for our sins. We've come by God's grace to hate our sins. We don't want sin in any corner of our lives. And if we do, again, that indicates that our spiritual health is not what it ought to be. We want God to do a thorough work of sanctification in our lives. This prayer is not intimidating. It is examining, certainly, but it is also encouraging. No less because at the end of verse number 24, it says, Who also will do it? And there is the encouragement that God is pleased to answer this prayer. And so we see that such a thorough work of sanctification depends on the power of the deity, the power of the Spirit of God. It is a work of God. Verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. This is God's work in our lives. It is God that sanctifies the child of God. Now, do we have a role to play? Well, yes, from man's perspective, we are to obey. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians chapter 2. But we do that because God works in us. And so at the end of the day, our sanctification is God working in our souls. We are responsible. We're responsible to pluck out the eye and cut off the hand. We're responsible to put off the old man and put on Christ. Those are things that are taught in the Word of God. But in it all, we must get back to this core foundational truth. It is God that sanctifies us wholly. And I am so thankful for that. For left to my own devices, there'd be very little progress sanctification-wise. In fact, it's worth saying there'd be none at all. It is God that leads us in the path of sanctification. And so in this portion, in this prayer, God is referred to in two different ways. He's referred to as the very God of peace, and he's referred to as the faithful one, verse number 24. And I want to look at those two terms for God uh, tonight, realizing that sanctification is a work of God. Well, what do these two terms indicate? How, how do they teach us and instruct us in these things? Well, first of all, in the God of peace. Now, Paul has not used the term the holy God, or the God of love, or some other attribute of God. Certainly we could argue that to call God the holy God would have been appropriate here. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so to see God's holiness is essential to then see our own sanctification. But Paul has chosen this term, the very God of peace. But what does Paul mean here? Is he referring to God's attribute of peace? He is the God who possesses perfect peace. God is perfectly at peace with himself. And what is the opposite of peace? Well, man's perspective, conflict, is the opposite of peace. In some of the language of the Bible, the opposite of peace is turmoil or even anxiety. And unsettledness of soul is the opposite of peace. 
Well, God has no such thing. God's not a conflict with himself. The three persons live in perfect divine harmony. There's no disagreements, no conflict, no strife. He is the God of peace. And in his being, he's marked by the absence of all turmoil. There's no fear, no alarm with God, no anxiety. Nothing shocks God, nothing surprises God. Nothing can take God by surprise in such a way that something will be stronger than God, for there's nothing stronger than God's. And therefore he lives and abides. He exists in perfect peace. God is the God of peace. And yes, certainly such a God is able to sanctify. He's able to give us his peace. Christ said, my peace give I unto you. And so all that is true. God is the God marked by peace. But I'm not convinced that fits the context of this particular portion. I think what Paul is getting at here is not peace as an attribute of God's, but rather God as the author of peace. God as the one who is the author of reconciliation between God and man. And I've got to try to prove that in your understanding. Please turn back, first of all, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to examine some of the places where this term, the God of peace, or similar language is used by the Apostle Paul. And if we see a pattern in this, well, then I think we'll get some clue as to what's meant in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, towards the, the end of that epistle, you have verse 11 where it says, Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. Again, here's the exhortation towards sanctification. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. And so there he's using the term the God of love and peace in the context whereby he's encouraging the Corinthian church to live in love and peace. They are to be of one mind. They are to be of good comfort. They are to nurture and encourage each other. They are to live in peace. And then he used this term the God of love and peace. And what you're seeing there is one example of Paul referring to God in a particular way that connects with the exhortation. He, he's drawing the language of God's attributes to then the outworking of that in the life of the church. The God of love and peace being with them. You see that also back in Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 is a very, very similar uh, portion to 1 Corinthians thir or 2 Corinthians 13. And 2 Corinthians 13 is dealing with this issue of, of praying in unity and enjoying unity. And so Romans chapter 15, and the verse number 30 says, This now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. It's an exhortation to united prayer. And then at the end of that, he says, verse number 33, Now the God of peace be with you all. It is the God of peace working in the church that then enables them to peacefully pray together in unity for the Apostle Paul. Can you see, it's another example of Paul using that particular title in a setting, in a context that is significant. Even over in chapter 16 of Romans, you'll see another instance. Romans 16, verse number 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now there, the scenario is somewhat different. In Corinthians, in Romans 15, it is a sense of God bringing about peace in the church, the God of reconciliation, enabling them to pray and enjoy unity together in the work. But here the setting 
is the fact that at that time they're living in conflict. They're in spiritual warfare with Satan. But the God of peace will end that conflict. He's the author of peace, and through his work, he will triumph over Satan, and they will enjoy the outworkings of that triumph in peace. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now, these examples, I believe, show us that the use of the title is significant. That when Paul selects this term, he's not just picking a random term for God and putting it in for the sake of some uh, literary prose. He's got a point to make. And I think the most helpful passage to illustrate the point he's making in 1 Thessalonians is Hebrews chapter 13. Turn across there now, please. Hebrews 13. Again, debates regarding the authorship of Hebrews, but it may well have been the Apostle Paul, uh, or else one who was closely associated with Paul. But in Hebrews chapter 13, and the verse number 20, it says, Now the God of peace. Now let's leave aside the rest of that verse. Verse 20 says, Now the God of peace, then pick it up in verse number 21, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. What's verse 21 about? God sanctifying them wholly, body, soul, and spirit, working in them entirely, that they're mature and complete in every good work. They're working out the will of God in their lives. And who is doing this work? It is the God of peace. You see how closely this is connected uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? And so what's in the rest of verse number 20? Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So God is the God of peace in verse number 20 in terms of the working of the gospel in Christ Jesus, securing peace through bloods. You think of Ephesians chapter 2. We're far, not, we're far off, but we're brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 2, there is the reconciliation of God and man, and man with man. And so the fact that God's a God of peace is indicating again that he's the author of peace with God. He's the reconciler between God and man through the blood of Christ. And then having brought that work of reconciliation, then he also reconciles man to man. John Gill, uh, speaking about Hebrews chapter 13, says that God is the God of peace who is so called because of his concern in the peace and reconciliation of his people. So is God possessing absolute peace? Yes. But here it seems more than likely that what Paul has in mind is God as the author of peace and the author of reconciliation. And so we're seeing here that Paul does not use these titles without thoughts. There is a very deliberate usage in the titles. And so from the Hebrew prayer, and going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it seems to be the thought that the God who secures our peace through blood, in that act, secures the basis of our sanctification. And I absolutely, I'm inserting that thought into Thessalonians. It's assumed here. It's implied here. It's argued from elsewhere. But the thought is, the God of peace, sanctify you wholly. He's the God who has produced peace. You're at peace with God. Therefore, he's invested in your sanctification. He's committed to your sanctification. That seems to be a thought in mind. Surely that it must be at least part of the foundation for verse number 24. The God of peace, sanctify you, who also will do it. You see, God 
works in our lives as those whose sin problem has been dealt with. Unless the sin problem is dealt with, God is not invested in our lives in that sense. There's a separation. But then by grace, the sin problem is dealt with. We're forgiven, we're reconciled, we're justified. And in that work then begins the work of sanctification. He then works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so God hears these prayers. It's in essence we're saying, Lord, you've brought me near by your blood. And I continue to work that blood in my life. The impact of that blood that sin will be put to death more and more. It is the encouragement that God is committed to your final salvation. Having given his son and shedding the son's blood on our behalf, it is the proof of God's commitment to our glorification. We have been justified, we will be glorified, and God is committed to every step in between. That is tremendously encouraging in our battle with sin. We wonder to ourselves, how can we ever get more like Christ Jesus? Well, the encouragement is Christ's blood has been shed for us. It is the God of peace that sanctifies us wholly. But God is also referred to here in the verse number 20, set forward as the faithful one. Faithful is he that calleth you. He's the God of peace and he's the God of faithfulness. Now here, when we think of faithfulness, we should think of God's reliability. Particularly his reliability in keeping his promises, in being true to his word. He is able to do this. He's able to keep his promises. He's the faithful God. And you think of a term in Deuteronomy chapter nine, 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him. There's the idea of God's faithfulness as the one who keeps covenant, he keeps his promises. But again, Paul is consistent in his writing. It's wonderful to see the connection in Paul's letters when he brings the same themes to light in the various churches. Uh, turn back, please, to 1 Corinthians. For you'll see two references to God's faithfulness in 1 Corinthians that both have connection with the thought of sanctification. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to begin with. 1 Corinthians 1 and the verse number 9. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testament of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how this is beating with the pulse of the confidence that they're going to be finally sanctified and glorified? They're going to be presented blameless when Christ returns and why they wait? But then the assurance that they will be confirmed in that day is grounded, verse number 9, in this truth. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You've been called. You've been called into God's grace, into fellowship with Christ. Therefore, due to God's faithfulness, you will reach the end. Due to God's faithfulness, you will be presented blameless in that final day. 
God's faithfulness is the ground and the insurance here of their final sanctification. And then you've got the same in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and the verse number 13. And again, having given the warning, the warning of the, uh, again, the falling away, the unbelief of the people of God in the Old Testament, the warning that those that think they stand should take heed lest they fall. He then gives the encouragement, verse number 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above all, above all that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. In other words, what Paul is saying is nothing can come into your life, whatever the form of temptation may be, nothing can come into your life that will crush you and destroy your soul. God's faithfulness is the guarantee that your soul cannot be crushed by anything in this life. No sin temptation, no affliction, no trial will have such an impact that you'll be taken away from your standing in grace. God's faithfulness is the guarantee of your endurance of every trial and every temptation. That is a tremendous promise. Paul knew the promise. And again, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we know the promise here. He says, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Paul knew the promise. He had taught the Romans the promise, those whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. He knew the promise that those who were called, chapter 5, verse 24 of this portion of Scripture, those who were called will be glorified. And he understands that God is so faithful that he will ensure that all those who are called will absolutely be glorified. And the Thessalonian believers knew that power in their lives. They weren't questioning that. They knew they were called. They had heard the word and they had believed the word. And they understood properly the theology of that, that the only reason they had believed the word was because God had called them. They knew it didn't rest upon their own free will. They knew it was the mighty part of God that had changed their lives. And because God had called them and changed their lives, they knew that God was working in their lives. And therefore, having called them, he would glorify them. And he's faithful to do it. And so there's the assurance that this prayer will indeed be answered. The God of peace sanctifying you wholly. The promise is theirs. God is faithful and will also do it. If the called are glorified, then the prayer for sanctification will be answered. We've been called by grace. And therefore we can take this prayer upon our own hearts. You know, we've seen this so many times in recent months in this church. The assurance that God will keep his people in all their troubles. The assurance that God will not forsake his people. He that spared not his own son, but delivered up for us all. How will he not with him freely also give us all things? We, we understand the assurance of that. God at peace, God off peace, bringing us to peace through the gift of the Son will give us everything we need because he that has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have these notes of assurance in our Bibles. And where do we find them? We turn to them from our motto text. His divine power hath given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're lacking nothing as God's people. The work of sanctification that begins continues to the end and we shall be glorified. Unbelief questions this. 
Carnality causes us at times to wonder, can this possibly be true? We, we know the wrestling with remaining sin like Paul did in Romans chapter 7. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul also knew that God gives victory through Christ Jesus. And why is he knew it was a battle? He didn't doubt the end. He understood the battle was going to be successfully accomplished through Christ working in his soul. You see, Paul prays this inspired prayer, and he's declaring to all of God's people that God is willing to sanctify his people. He's willing to sanctify us wholly. He's willing to work in every room, in every corner of every room. He's willing to deal with our sins. And dear child of God, the power of sin is such in your life that only the power of God can give you freedom. We are ignorant of sin's power if we presume we can do it in our own strength. And yet so many people, so many believers, they struggle with remaining sin and besetting sins. And they're fighting in the flesh and not in the spirit. It is the power of God that gives the victory. And he is able. And so we must depend upon him in prayer. We must depend upon God in our lives day by day. That he is able, he is faithful, he has brought us to himself in peace, and he is able to answer this prayer. Dear child of God, don't despair. Sin can have a tremendous weight in your life. And there are times like David of old, we can fall into very grievous sin. But we need not fall and stay fallen. Though we fall, God can pick us up. And he's able to lead us on in the ways of righteousness for his name's sake. One final point. This prayer is for you tonight. Not one of us have made the point that we've arrived to such a degree that we don't need to pray this prayer. If you have some idea that you have arrived and don't need to be sanctified in some area of your life, uh, perhaps it's because there's some door closed that you're keeping God out of. God must continue to work in our lives. He does so by his word and by his spirit. And praise God, he is willing and he is able to make us like Christ Jesus. You see, every true child of God desires this. We don't resist this. We want to be like the Lord. We want to know the Lord. We want to know the Lord in every part of our lives. And may God hear us and answer our prayers tonight. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.